As we look around the world, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that there is division amongst people all around the world. We see division everywhere. We see it certainly in our country. We see it in our politics. We see it between nations. We see it between um, ethnic groups, between races. It is everywhere. And in fact, this uh, past week, I don't know if you're watching the news, but uh, Amber Geiger uh, was on trial for the murder of um, a black American. And uh, she stood trial and the brother of the one who was murdered actually got up on the stand and amazingly proclaimed the gospel and uh, told her that I forgive you. I want what's best for you. But most of all, I want you to be able to turn to God and, and Jesus Christ. And he even gave her a hug afterwards. And it was a very touching moment. But believe it or not, there are some who were actually upset that he did that because of the issue of racial inequality in this nation, um, one person posted a tweet of a picture of the brother hugging the woman, and he put on the top, post-traumatic slavery syndrome. So he basically likened, and this was actually a um, self-proclaimed bishop of a church. Um, so he basically portrayed this act of forgiveness as almost a mental illness. And so this is the example of the kind of division that we see even within our country. But division shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone because division has existed from the beginning of time. When you think back to the Garden of Eden, from the fall of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, what happened next? Well, they had two sons, Cain and Abel, brothers, and they could not even love one another, right? Cain murdered Abel. And then even after God ended up bringing a flood because of the great evil that was in the world, we have the story at the Tower of Babylon, where when people do work together, they work together to try to rebel against God. And at the Tower of Babel, um, God reached out and confused their languages. And by confusing their languages, he ended up creating nations. He ended up creating different people groups. And because of the sinfulness of man, a lot of those people groups, a lot of those nations today continue to be at war with one another. In almost every part of the world I've ever been in, and I've worked in a number of different places, not only all over the U.S., but in Thailand, in Japan, in Germany, in the U.K., in almost every part of the world I go to, I can see division between peoples. It may be different peoples in different parts of the world, but it is a universal fact that in our sinfulness, we are divided. We do not like what we do not understand. This is the plight of man. And this has not only happened between nations, but this has happened between Jews and Gentiles going back to the Old Testament. And so it's no coincidence that Paul in his ministry, would often fight against disunity. In fact, you might be surprised to know that when you read through his letters, he probably said more about the need for unity, and he probably fought more against disunity than anything else. And Ephesians is no different. Because as we get to where we are in Ephesians, from here in the middle of chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 3, Paul's focus will be upon us as a people of God and our unity in Christ. In fact, when we consider what we have learned in Ephesians up until now, going back to the opening chapter, after his introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we saw from verses 3 to 14 all the spiritual blessings that God has for those who believe. All the spiritual blessings for all those who are saved. And then he goes into a prayer. He goes in a prayer from verses 15 to 23, and he prayed that you would know God more intimately and that you would know, among other things, the hope of your calling, the riches of the inheritance in the saints. And then he goes to great lengths to talk about the surpassing greatness of God's power to us who believe. And then that power extended into chapter 2 from verses 1 to 10. We saw the power of God expressed to you in saving you, that while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God, 
on account of his love, mercy, grace, and kindness made you alive together with Christ. And now as we get to verses 11 to 22, what we're going to see here is God's work and purpose in uniting us together as the church. Now you see in your bulletin, our sermon for this morning, the church has one glorious new man in Christ, and it says Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. You may want to add part one to that, because um, we will be covering verses 11 through 13 for this morning. It'll probably take us three weeks to get through this section, but this is a marvelous section of Scripture, and I want you to understand the implications that it has for us as the church, as children of God, as fellow brothers and sisters, as saints, as members of the household of God. Now, my purpose this morning is, as your bulletin says, is to reveal the divine purpose of God in creating a united people in Christ, thus encouraging us to greater love for one another in the church. Now, let's do this. Let's go ahead and read through this entire section, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, and then we will examine the first three verses. Starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, just a few observations of this text as a whole. The main idea of this text is not that difficult. What we see here is that God has brought Jews and Gentiles together to one. We see that. There was a barrier between them. God removed that, and now we are one in Christ. That's not difficult to discern from this passage. What is difficult is to understand all these details that Paul puts out there and how it relates to his main idea. You know, he, Paul, as I mentioned, he, he's talking here about the body of Christ, and really this theme is going to carry him from this point all the way to the end of chapter 3. So when we think about Ephesians, Ephesians is six chapters long. The first three chapters is about theology, but half of that theology is really focused upon the body of Christ. It must be pretty important. And so the so what of the gospel gets played out here that when we consider the gospel, because the theology that we've seen in the first three chapters has been centered upon the gospel, about the salvation, about God's redemptive plan of us. But this is where we get to the so what of all of that when it comes to the church, that there is a purpose that he saved us. And it wasn't simply just to save us, but it was for us to come together as one body. It was for us to come together as the temple of God. Now, in this body, I don't know that there are too many of you that grew up in Jewish backgrounds. Raise your hand if you grew up in a Jewish background. Okay, I don't see a single hand, <clears throat> and that doesn't surprise me. I don't recall meeting anyone from Jewish backgrounds here in this church. At the church we came from, there were actually quite a few. But nevertheless, 
Today, we look at this and we don't quite relate to the differences between Jews and Gentiles. And yet it still is fully applicable to us because when you understand the kind of division that happened between Jews and Gentiles, you recognize that there is no excuse at all for division amongst us. And especially now within the body of Christ. Now, when we look at the, these verses that I just read from verses 11 to 22, it's actually divided up very similarly to the first 10 verses. You remember the first 10 verses of this chapter started off by telling us where we were, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That was in verses 1 to 3. And then starting in verse 4, you saw how God interceded. And we had those two beautiful words, but God. And then when you get down to verses 8, 9, and 10, you start to get into the purpose. And especially in verse 10, the purpose is for you to walk in the works that God has created beforehand for you. We are the workmanship of Christ. Well, similarly, in this section, when you look at the first two verses, it really emphasizes what we were prior to being saved. What our situation was prior to salvation. And unlike verse 4, when verse 4 said, but God, in verse 13, we see now, but now in Christ Jesus. We see the intercession of Jesus Christ to help, help address the condition that we suffered from in verses 11 through 12. And then going down to verse 19, you see this. So then, this is the result of the work that Christ did for us. This is the result of us being built into the temple of God. Now, we're going to spend three weeks going over this, and for this morning, we're just going to cover the first three verses. But there are a lot of references here in these first three verses. And by the way, that first point, which is going to be our focus for this morning, is our former alienation from God and his people. Our former alienation from God and his people. From verses 11 through 13. Your bulletin has a slight error. It says 11 to 12. We're going to do 11 through 13 as being that first section. So taking a look at these first three verses, let's go ahead and read them once again. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, as we consider this passage for this morning, think about how often when we see commercials, we are presented with before and after images. You know, especially with things like weight loss programs, fitness programs, you even see it with home improvement shows, right? You see a before and after picture. We see before and after pictures with so many programs, with so many shows that show the transformation of something from the before state to the after state. And those pictures are very effective because it helps us to see just how well the process worked in bringing it to its improved condition. And when we consider those kinds of commercials and their effect upon us, Paul here is doing something very similar. He's not giving us a commercial, but he is reminding us of where we came from. Because the more that we understand what our condition was prior to salvation, the more we can appreciate just what God has done for us in bringing us to where we are now. And so it is important. Sometimes we overlook this. Oftentimes we overlook this, that, yeah, yeah, I know that. Well, no, let's slow down. Let's know this in detail so that we can see in clear, high definition just what our situation was and how God rescued us from that. Because while we look at these first three chapters as a whole in Ephesians, this is all about God's redemptive plan, but there are so many aspects to God's redemptive plan. If we stop simply at just saying that God saved us from our sins, you are coming woefully short of the magnificent depths and riches that are in there in the gospel that Paul and God wants us to understand and to be able to meditate upon and to be able to glorify God as a result of. Now take a look at verse 11 again. We, we see here some references. We see references to Gentiles in the flesh. Paul is clearly writing from a Jewish perspective. Gentiles don't refer to themselves as Gentiles. 
right? That's something that Jews refer to Gentiles as. And it's really for the Jews, it's either you're a Jew or you're basically not a Jew. You're, you're a Gentile. And that's why we also have references to circumcision and uncircumcision. And then notice in verse 12, notice the state of Gentiles in verse 12. It's described in five different ways. I don't have to list them out. They're right there for you to see. And we're going to take a look at each one of those five. We're going to take a look at how we're being described to better understand this. But it's going to require that we go back to the Old Testament. I'm going to take you through many Old Testament passages this morning, and then we're going to come back to this passage, and you will see just how much more clear this becomes. Now, if you are allergic to a lot of flipping around in the Bible, you can just listen, um, but um, be prepared for those of you who are ready to follow me, because we are going to look at a lot of verses. Now, I'm not going to try to make you flip back and forth. We're going to go sequentially through a number of verses for the most part, And hopefully at the end of that, you're going to start to get a sense of the Old Testament feel that Paul gives to these verses to help understand what it is that he's referring to. So with that, let's turn all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. Genesis, first book of your Bible, all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis 11, verses 6 through 9, I had mentioned this earlier. This is the episode of the Tower of Babel. This is when man wanted to defy God and to make a name for themselves rather than scatter and spread across the earth as God had instructed. And when you get to Genesis chapter 11, this is the Lord's response to what they had been doing. In chapter 11, verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. By the way, this is the early name for Babylon. Um, Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So we see that part of God's judgment upon this people was to confuse their languages. And by confusing their languages, he created many people groups, many nations, who we, as we heard this morning, as I mentioned this morning, we see a lot of division between these people groups. In fact, the entire first 11 chapters of Genesis is all a long commentary on sin in man. It's, it's, it's a long testimony of just the sinfulness of man. But God has a plan that he institutes starts starting in verse, um, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12. Go to the very next chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. This is the initial call from God to Abram. And what we'll see here, this is the start of what we call the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. This is one of the promises given to Abraham and his people. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, in that promise. We see in verse 3 that there are promises to all the families of the earth. But the promise of Abraham starts with his descendants. It starts with the nation that would come forth from Abraham. And in fact, later in Genesis, turn now to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verses 10 through 11, at multiple points, God would repeat his promise to Abraham. But in chapter 17, verses 10 through 11, this is where he establishes the covenant of circumcision. Verse 10, we read, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. The covenant of circumcision was meant as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. This promise that God would bless them, would give them land, would bring them to a promised land. 
This was the Abrahamic covenant, and the sign of that was this covenant of circumcision. So while the Abrahamic covenant eventually had promises to bless all the families of the earth, this covenant of circumcision was specifically for the Jewish people. It was specifically for the Israelites, and it would mark them from all the other nations of the world. And that's where circumcision begins. But it wasn't just the Abrahamic covenant that was given to Israel. Go to the book of Exodus. So one book over to the right, we get to Exodus. And go to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, go down to verse 4. This is the Lord speaking through Moses to the Israelites. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. This was God's statement just before issuing the Ten Commandments in the very next chapter. And the Ten Commandments was symbolic of the entire Mosaic law or the Mosaic covenant. So we not only had the Abrahamic covenant that was given to Israel, we had the Mosaic covenant that was specifically given to Israel with the promise that Israel would be a holy nation, a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. So that was the second great promise. So you had the Abrahamic covenant tied to the Abrahamic covenant. You had the covenant of circumcision. And then here in Exodus, we have the Mosaic covenant that was given specifically to Israel. And then now fast forward several books. The first five books turned past that, turned past uh, Judges and then past Joshua 1 Samuel, and then get to 2 Samuel. We're going to get to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. By the time you get to 2 Samuel, we're into the life of David. We're into the life of David. David is the king after God's own heart. And in chapter 7, David wanted to build a building, a home for God. Um, he thought that his own house had surpassed the tent the tabernacle that God had resided in and wanted to replace it with an actual home. And uh, God responded back to him with this promise. Second Samuel 7, go down to verse 12. God tells him that you will not build a house for me, but your son will instead. And then verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, the Lord says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this was what was called the Davidic covenant. And by covenant, I mean promise. So we had the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant given to Abram. And then we had the Mosaic covenant given to Moses and the nation of Israel. And here we have the Davidic covenant, which is a promise given to David that one of his sons would reign in the kingdom forever. Now, we know now who this son of David is, right? Who is it? It's Jesus. And we know that Jesus is up in heaven, reigning from heaven. Amen? And he reigns not just over Israel, but over all of creation, over all the heavens and the universe and the earth. But at this time, this promise had been given specifically to Israel. So when you get to the days of Jesus, even when the wise men come from the east, Guess who they request to see? The king of the Jews. And even when Jesus stood on trial, he was questioned by Pontius Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? 
That's how he was known, first and foremost, because of this Davidic covenant. And these are the three major covenants of the Old Testament. If you know nothing about the Old Testament, know this, that we have three major promises, one given to Abraham and then given to Moses and then given to David. And by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, none of those three are fulfilled. None. It would be Jesus Christ himself that would bring all three to fulfillment. It would be in the Messiah that all those things would be fulfilled. And as we consider these covenants, remember that there was this covenant of circumcision that was tied to the Abrahamic covenant, right? This covenant of circumcision that we saw from Genesis. Now, if you're still in 2 Samuel, turn back to the left to 1 Samuel. Turn back to the left in 1 Samuel. And what I want you to see is just how the Israelites had come to regard people who were uncircumcised, the way they would refer to them. In 1 Samuel chapter 14... 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. I know there's a lot of flipping, but I'm trying to, I tried to make this easier for us to be able to navigate uh, to these books and chapters. But 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6, we read, Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. At this time, Jonathan was leading a very small army against a much larger army. And notice that they're referred to as uncircumcised. Now go to chapter 17, same book, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26, we see the well-known story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath, Goliath being the giant Philistine. And look at how David responds the first time he is confronted with the possibility of fighting this big Goliath. Verse 26, then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Now, at that time, if you know the story, Goliath had been mocking them. He had been mocking all the Israelites. He had been challenging. He'd been begging for anyone to be able to stand up and be able to fight him. But look at what David also says. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And then go to chapter 31. Chapter 31, same book, 1 Samuel chapter 31. We see Saul. Saul is nearing the end of his life. He sees the end coming. He knows he's going to die. But look at how he chooses to die and why. 1 Samuel 31, 1 Samuel 31, verse 4. Of course, Saul was the first king of Israel before David. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. So we see just in these few verses that there's a certain kind of derision towards uncircumcised, especially those who are enemies of Israel. And for the Jews, either you were circumcised or you were not circumcised. And being circumcised meant you were in the nation of Israel. Everyone in the nation of Israel was expected to be circumcised. And even for those few that would come from outside and actually choose to follow God, follow the God of Israel, they too were expected to be circumcised if they were to join the ranks of Israel. And then if you can find your way to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 25 to 26. In fact, just listen to this. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 25 to 26. Jeremiah was the last prophet in Judah before the final exile to Babylon. And listen to what the Lord says through Jeremiah. Because when we think about circumcision, even though there was a heavy emphasis upon physical circumcision, we see that the Lord emphasized over and over again that there was a spiritual circumcision that was also needed. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 25 reads, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Verse 26, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clipped the hair on their temples. 
for all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of hearts. So we see there, though, there was emphasis upon the physical circumcision as the sign, because if Israel, if there was any Israelites not willing to be circumcised, they would be cut off from the rest of the nation. But here the Lord points out that the real problem for the house of Israel is that they were uncircumcised of heart. And let me read for you Ezekiel 44. Ezekiel 44, verses 6 through 9. You shall say to the rebellious one, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Enough of all of your abominations, O house of Israel, when you brought in foreigners uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary, to profane it, even my house, when you offered my food, the fat, the blood, for they made my covenant void. This in addition to all of your abominations. And you have not kept the charge of my holy things yourselves, but you have set foreigners to keep charge of my sanctuary. Then verse 9, thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. So we see here that there are strong prohibitions in that statement, strong prohibitions from allowing foreigners into the temple of God. And it was the temple of God. That's where you went in order to worship God. That's where you went to draw near to God. That's where you went. That's where the Israelites went, going all the way back to Moses. Initially, they had created a tent that we called a tabernacle. And then by the time you get to the days of Solomon, who was the son of David, he sets up a temple to replace that tabernacle. And inside you have the glory of God, which is to signify the presence of the Lord amongst the nation of Israel. And they would go there to worship, knowing that God was there. But we see very strong prohibitions here that no one amongst the nations were allowed to go in. So you're starting to get a sense of some of the separation that was even ordained by God between Israel and Gentiles. In fact, very familiar passage, even in the New Testament. You know the story of the deacon Stephen? When he stood before the Sanhedrin, he gave that scathing sermon to them, and they ended up stoning him to death. You remember that story? Let me read from you this. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. This is what the deacon Stephen says to those Jewish leaders. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. So we see that circumcision, while it was a big deal for the Jews, the physical circumcision, the bigger deal was the spiritual uncircumcision. So as we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, let's turn back to Ephesians 2, and I think these, these verses are start, going to start to make a, a lot more sense. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore, <clears throat> therefore remember, he starts off with therefore remember, just to show the connection to verses 1 to 10. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, okay, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Let's stop right there. So Paul is reminding them of the way that Jews looked down upon them. You were Gentiles in the flesh, and we refer to you as uncircumcision. And uncircumcision specifically meant you were not of the people of God. You were not a part of the Abrahamic promise. Now, of course, they eventually were because they were because through Abraham, all the families of the earth were to be blessed. But they were not given the covenant of circumcision, which was the mark of that promise. So therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Now, Paul was amongst the circumcision. But you can see here that even Paul now disdains this difference. He says, you were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. And this circumcision, look at this. This is the one that is performed in the flesh by human hands. Paul is showing that he is talking about physical. He is not talking about the spiritual circumcision. 
This had been the emphasis of Jews. This had been the legalism that he fought tooth and nail against, against the Judaizers who would go into all the Gentile areas where the gospel had been preached, trying to tell them that you can't be saved unless you are circumcised. That's what led Paul to, in Galatians 1, say, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. The real circumcision that was needed was circumcision of the heart. But now we get to verse 12. Verse 12, Paul is going to lay out five things that characterized us as Gentiles. And remember, he says in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, when he starts off by saying that you were at that time separate from Christ, what does he mean by that? Well, I just walked through the three major promises, the three major covenants given to the nation of Israel, starting with the Abrahamic covenant, and then the Mosaic covenant, and then what was the third? Davidic. It was the Davidic covenant, and it was the Davidic covenant that provided the prophecy of the future Messiah, the future Christ. But that had only been revealed to the nation of Israel. And so even while Israel was, was paying the punishment for rebellion and disobedience, even though God's judgment was upon Israel, they were the ones who were the keepers of the law. They knew the covenants. They knew the promises. They knew that at some point God would restore them. They knew that at some point there would be a Messiah. There would be a Savior that would come and help restore all of their fortunes back to them. That would bring them back to their land. That would restore their fortunes, restore their prosperity. So though they were rebellious, they still understood the promises that a Messiah was coming. The Gentiles, unless they were specifically trained in this, would have had no idea. Because God did not communicate this to Gentiles. He communicated this to the nation of Israel. So they were at that time separate from Christ. And the second thing that characterized Gentiles is that they're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Now the word for commonwealth, it's the same word used often for citizenship. Um, the Greek word is politeia. It's where we get the word politics. The commonwealth, we don't use the word commonwealth very often, but when commonwealth is used here, the idea is that when you're citizens of a country, you share in the rights and privileges of that country, right? I mean, think about the United States. If you are a United States citizen, you know that there are rights and privileges given to you that are not given to someone who is a foreigner that just crosses over. Now, there are a lot of people that are trying to change that, but you know that being a citizen of a country means something. There are certain privileges that are granted. And for those that come across the border, that come from foreign lands, there's a process they have to go through in order to gain that citizenship. But in this case, when it talks about the commonwealth of Israel, there was benefits to being in the nation of Israel. There were benefits that you can go into the temple and worship God from inside the temple. There are benefits that even the Mosaic Covenant gave promises of blessings for obedience. There was benefits of the Abrahamic Covenant knowing that Israel would be a great nation. And indeed, in the Old Testament, they were. There were all kinds of rights and privileges. And even if you read through the law, you would see references to foreigners. And while foreigners were not to be mistreated, they certainly didn't have the same rights and privileges of those that were of Israel. So Israel was to be the holy nation. Remember, we read that from the Mosaic Covenant. God promised that you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There was a specific benefit to belonging to the nation of Israel. But Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And then not only that, but as we read on in verse 12, there were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now this, at this point, hopefully is very obvious. The covenants of promise, when we think of the covenants of promise given to Israel, it's those three that we just covered. The Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, meaning they had no knowledge of it unless they were specifically trained, which was not very often. In fact, the wise men that came from the east that proclaimed Jesus as king of the Jews, it was likely that they were trained by a school that was started from the prophet Daniel. 
So unless they were specifically trained, Gentiles were strangers to these covenants of promise. They had no knowledge of it. While Israel always knew that the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant that would have to be fulfilled by God. And that the Mosaic covenant was conditional, but the Davidic covenant was unconditional. That there would be a savior, a Messiah that would come and reverse their unfortune, their, the judgment, the wrath that had been poured out upon them. So not only were Gentiles, so we see here, we've seen these first three, that they were, Gentiles were separate from Christ. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, but also they had no hope. Now, when we talk about hope here, we're talking about ultimate hope. Everyone hopes in something in this world. You may have temporal hopes. You may have material hopes. You may have hopes of love or, or fame or fortune or whatever it may be. But when he says having no hope, it means having no ultimate hope because you had no relationship with God. You knew nothing of the Messiah who was coming. You had no hope. And tied to that is the final description. You're without God in the world. This is not to say that they didn't have their own gods that they worship. We know that they do. In fact, you may remember when Paul is in Athens, he's looking around and there are statues that were created for all the different kinds of gods. And they even had one statue that was labeled to the unknown God. So they had no shortage of gods that they worship. But the difference is they worshiped false gods. Only Israel was given a knowledge of the true God. So that's how they were without God in the world. So these are all the different ways as Gentiles, it characterized us before Christ. We take this for granted because since the time we were born, the gospel has always gone forth. And from the time we were saved, we'd never had to face this kind of dichotomy in terms of what life was before Christ and after Christ. But this was the reality for all Gentiles. And praise God that the gospel has gone forth, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, not just for Israel. But he died on the cross for all who would repent and believe in his name. So God loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And so we see in these verses just the state that the Gentiles existed in. But when we go to verse 13. Now, I want to, before we get to verse 13, let me just add a few disclaimers here. We are reading about all the ways that Gentiles were excluded from the nation of Israel and all the promises and all the covenants and all those things that was associated, the benefits of being a part of the nation of Israel. That does not mean that the Jews were naturally better than us as Gentiles. I mean, going back to verses 1 to 3 of chapter of this same chapter, going back to verses 1 to 3, we see very clearly that Jews were just as wretched as Gentiles. However, As I mentioned, the revelation of hope had been revealed specifically to the Jews. They had access to these promises. In fact, let me read for you Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. You can just write this down, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Listen to how Paul describes his fellow Jews. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And listen to this, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. He recognized that the nation of Israel were the blessed people of God. They're the ones who are the keepers of all of God's truths, all of God's promises, his covenants. And so these were special blessings that were given to Israel, even though we see at the beginning of chapter 2 of Ephesians chapter 2 that the Jews were no better than Gentiles. But as we look at verse 13, Paul up until this point in Ephesians had really been focusing more on the work of God the Father. He's now really going to focus on the work of Christ. Looking again at verse 13, we read, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I had said, going back to verse 4, that the two most beautiful words in the Bible were, but God. And we see here a similar sequence of words, but now in Christ Jesus. 
This division that we had between us and Jews, this division that that kept us from knowing the promises of God, from understanding the covenants of God, from enjoying the commonwealth of Israel, from enjoying the benefits of being in the household of God. These divisions have been removed by Christ Jesus through his blood, through his work on the cross. And so we see now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. This idea of far off and having been brought near, it goes back to Isaiah chapter 57, verse 19. You don't have to turn there. It's quoted later in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So this whole idea of being near and being far away, it's a description of what we were before. We were far away from God. And to be near to God, to be near to God means to enjoy his blessings, to be in his presence, to be able to worship him, to be able to praise him, to be able to have communion with him. And so what Paul is making the point here is that Jesus Christ, that that but now in Christ Jesus, those of us who have been far off, who are prevented from coming near. And remember, we saw even those verses in the Old Testament that Gentiles were not allowed in the house of God. Those who have been far off, they have been brought near and they have been brought near by none other than the blood of Christ. Now, we're going to next week when we get to the next section, we're going to see the various ways in in, in which this impacts us, um, how we were brought together with the Jews and and what that means for us ultimately in terms of being in the household of God. We will learn more about that. But just to read some verses from you in terms of being near, you can just write this down. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was the last book of Moses. They're about to enter the promised land. They had already received the law. And Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, this was God's design for Israel that if they had obeyed, the nations would look at Israel and they would ask this question, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? The idea was that God was near to the nation of Israel. And in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And then Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Solomon writes, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So to draw near is to draw near to to worship the Lord. And of course, in the New Testament, we have this from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that today applies to all of us. We are able to draw near to, to God because of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his work. When he died on that cross and that veil was torn in two, it not only meant that you had direct access to God, but it removed all barriers, not just Jews, but now Gentiles also have access to God. And though previously in the Old Testament, God would reside in a tent and then he would reside in a building. Today, he resides within the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the household of God. Later on in this passage, you will see that we're being built into the temple of God. This is a beautiful Old Testament analogy being applied to us today that each one of us are building blocks of the temple of God with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And the fact that we're being built together, it's got to mean something more than just simply us showing up on Sunday to hear a message and to go home. It's got to mean that we as a people are a people that love one another, that care for one another, that we not only glorify God in what we proclaim, but we also proclaim that the division that has happened in all of mankind since the fall of man, going back to the book of Genesis, the division that we see all over the world, the division that we see in this nation amongst different people groups, that within the church of Jesus Christ, this division no longer exists, that we are united as one in Christ. And for us to be united means that we care for one another, we love one another, we meet each other's needs. Beloved, 
Are you doing that? As a church, do we really know one another? Do you know the prayer needs of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do we simply come on Sunday just to greet one another and then go home and go about our separate ways? This is part of the reasons why we're establishing some additional ministries, some additional programs for people to get involved. I'm so encouraged by those of you who are involved in the Awana program serving our youth. And I hope and pray that those of you who are in that program, that you're also being an encouragement to each other that you're getting to know one another and not merely just serving the children of this church and of the community. I pray for those women who are in the women's group that you are really getting to know one another. You are understanding the needs of one another, what's weighing down on your heart, and that you're able to encourage one another. I pray the same thing for the men who are together in the men's group. Whatever ministries you're involved in, let this church, let Western Avenue Baptist Church be a reflection of God's glory in us as a glorious new man in Christ. Now, for those of you who are here this morning, if you do not know God's plan, if you do not understand why Jesus Christ had to come, if you are sitting here now and not certain what to think of Christianity, let me issue this statement to you. You have no hope in this world aside from the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent him into this world not to be our spiritual leader, not simply just to be a good man who will show us how to live our lives. He sent him into this world in order to die for our sins. All of us are sinners. We will all stand before God and have to give an account for the sins that we have committed. And there is no way that we can outweigh the wrongs that we have done with the good that we have done. For all the good that you have done, according to the prophet Isaiah, it's nothing more than filthy rags. Only by confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, only by repenting of your sins and being willing to follow Christ can you find salvation. If you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord or you start to feel this pull in your heart that you want to be saved, that you want to know the Lord, you want to have this salvation, then do not leave without talking to one of our deacons. Deacons, can you stand up? Deacons and your wives, would you take a moment and stand up for a moment? So we have, um, we have a couple here. We have one back there, a couple over here. Um, If you have any questions or if you can't find them, you can talk to one of the other members here of the church, but do not leave without considering the state of your soul and how Jesus Christ can help fill that void that only he can fill because only he is the son of God who paid for your sins on the cross. And for the rest of us, glorify God in the body of Christ. Glorify God in your walk. Glorify your God in your praise of him. But glorify God most specifically within the context of the church with one another, showing ourselves to be not only a people who have been saved, but a people who are united in love as brothers and sisters in the household of God. Let's pray.